source of true delight, my unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding The scripture text for this morning's sermon comes from Judges chapter 2. It's on page 201 in the blue pew Bible in front of you. Page 201. We'll read from Judges 2, verse 6, to 3, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went, each to his inheritance, to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers, who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did, or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. 
Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray again, please. Lord God, we come again to seek to know your will and your word to, Lord, get at what you want to tell us in this passage, what the Holy Spirit means to say to us, why this was written for the people of God, both then and for us now. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to enter into this passage, Lord, to have it assess us, And above all, Lord, to have it bring us to the mercy and goodness of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, to fix our hearts all the more upon this great Savior who has rescued us, who has sacrificed himself for us. Ever increase our love and devotion and happiness in Jesus, Lord. For your glory and honor we pray. Amen. There's a, a book, Octavius Winslow has written, uh, entitled The uh, the Declension of Religion in the Soul of Man. That's the basic title. And in this book, he begins by saying, one of the most appalling things to realize as a believer is that after everything that we have known about Jesus Christ and all the love that has been shown us in Christ Jesus the goodness and kindness of God, that there still can be within us this tendency to turn away from him. Just appalling in the face of all that he's accomplished for us, that there is still this tendency uh, to turn away from God. We're going to address this a bit later, but uh, one of the great, great dangers for all of you young people, children and, and teenagers, is that you will be kind of inoculated. Inoculation, you know, is when you get a shot. So, And that's a good thing, to get a shot so that you don't get a sickness. But it's a bad thing when you get a shot of Jesus and somehow instead of worshiping him and being amazed at him, you get inoculated against him so that you don't catch Jesus. You don't, you're not stirred about Jesus. You hear about the cross, you hear about God, and it just bounces off of you and you just don't really care about it. Even though your parents may just be passionate for Jesus and for you, just shrug your shoulders. It's a dangerous thing 
this tendency that we have. And, and we, we, we see this in this generation. It, it comes really as a, as a shock when you're reading about, you read through Joshua and their faithfulness and they're taking the land and you come to Judges and everything falls apart. And, and in this passage, during that whole generation, they serve God and then, bam, it's all over. One commentator says, it's almost as though they're just waiting to get in the land so they could get their hands on those other gods. I mean, it seems that way. What is this in us? And that's why the title of the sermon, why do we abandon God? Why would anybody abandon God? Or, Or to ask the question, maybe for the believer, why do we have this constant tendency? What makes us to abandon God in any way in our lives? And so I want to talk about it in in these ways to first say that it's because we refuse to know him. We we just refuse to know him. Now, it sounds more innocent when it says there arose another generation in verse uh, 10 of chapter 2. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. But the word here is the same word for Eli's two... uh, pagan sons, just raucous, sexual, uh, whoremongering sons who were also priests. And it said they did not know the Lord. Well, they knew plenty about the Lord fact-wise, but they refused him. They would not acknowledge him. This is a generation that would not acknowledge him, that would not enter into the beauty and glory of knowing this this God. And so they refused uh, They refuse to know God. Secondly, they run after other gods. And then thirdly, we'll see, they respond poorly. And that's an understatement to God's testing. They respond poorly to God's testing. So notice in verse 10 that here's the essential, and some have called this the root of the problem. We're just just calling it the fact that they refused him. It is the root of everything. But they refused to know the Lord. They refused to enter into the experience of God's goodness and God's accomplishment, God's deliverance of Israel. And it's, this is emphasized in this passage, verses 6 through 10, because in the page, right the page before the end of Joshua, this is basically a repeat of that ending of Joshua. Except here, he says, instead of what Joshua says, they've seen all the work that the Lord had done, he adds the great work. So he's emphasizing the fact this great, uh, glorious, amazing work, they would not acknowledge it. They refused it. And notice, if you don't acknowledge his work, you don't acknowledge him. If you don't see his grace and you lose sight of his grace, you lose sight of God himself. If his grace fades, you've got no God anymore. You may have an idol left. You may have this God you've made up in your mind. But the God, the God of grace who has given himself in Christ Jesus, and that fades from view, this glorious accomplishment in Christ Jesus, and it fades from your imagination and your affections, then you have no God, not the true God. 
And that's what happened to Israel. They did not acknowledge and recognize this God anymore. It underscores what is said in Psalm 78, the the critical thing of speaking to your children of the glorious deeds of the Lord and the wonders that he has done so that they would set their hope on God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And it goes on and on about how Israel continued to refuse uh, to, to, to forget God's goodness. And so for you and me, our hearts in our context in Christ Jesus, because the, the work of God then was the fact that he had delivered them out of Egypt and brought them into Canaan and sustained them all the way through the wilderness. Our work, our exodus is what Jesus accomplished in bringing us from darkness to light through his sacrifice on the cross. And our hearts must remain soft to the work of Jesus Christ. And we must daily acknowledge and enter into that purposely, forcefully enter into, I will know your goodness and your grace. This illustration maybe would help that if you suddenly, you kids, were given a baby puppy... What do you think would happen if you left him in a box in the garage and it's freezing cold outside and you just leave him in the box? And then in the, in the, the worst cold of the winter, and then you just check on him next month, right? You don't feed him, you don't give him water, you don't go cuddle him, you don't see if he's warm. You just leave him in the little box. You know he's not going to be doing very well, is he? Well, I would like to picture for you that grace in our hearts is like that little puppy, okay? Not because it's not powerful in terms of God's grace, but when God's powerful grace takes on our life, then we get very active about nurturing that grace in our lives. We recognize it is a tender plant, And if it's not watered, if it's not nurtured, if it's not cuddled, if it's not fed, it will not stay there. (laughs) Our tendency to deviate is so quick, so fast. And so we must be about nurturing, staying astonished. (laughs) It's a good way to put it. Stay astonished at the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. Stay amazed, stay in joy, stay in gratitude, nurture these things. And young people, again, it's it's so important for you and it's so difficult. And we see it so often in our own children and other children, the, the tendency to just hear with the and look with the blank stare and just think, Okay, I've heard this so many times. Let me get to Xbox, you know. Let me watch my movie. Let me go play. Let me do something else instead of hearing about Jesus again, you know. And I want to urge you young people, you teenagers, the children, ask God to give you eyes to see the beauty of God, the wonder of God, 
to love him, to, to see his goodness. And, and this really is something that God has to do for us because we tend to be hardened against these things. Our tendency is boredom. Our tendency is to flatline in regard to our emotions about God. Our tendency is... That, that's the most dishonoring, wicked thing that we can do is you know, shrug our shoulders at the glory of God. Yet that's, that's what we will do. That's what every one of us will do. And we have been in the church the longest... For many of us, that's the greatest thing we fight. And for many people, when you see a new convert come to Christ and you see their eagerness, you have one or two responses. A little, one may be a little convicted like, oh, I can remember where I used to feel that way. Or you get a little smug about it and think, yeah, you'll get over it. You know. Kay and I had people tell us that when we were first married. We had this, this lady, I'll say. Uh, in this church where we were doing a year out of seminary, and that was our first year of marriage. And we were just, of course, lovey-dovey and all over each other and all that kind of thing. Uh, probably too many PDAs, but we're, <laughs> that's just the way it was. But um, if she didn't slap my hand now, we'd still do it. But no, I'm just kidding. Um, but she said to us, just, just in a mocking, haughty tone, said, you'll get over all that. You'll get over all that. I don't even know if she's alive now, but I would love to tell her after 34 years, I didn't get over all that. You know, it's just, <laughs> I love her more than ever. I love, you so anyway, but you see, that, that has to be nurtured. And we've got so many things battling us. We've got, if you're in the church and you learn about Jesus, you get a, a sense of self-righteousness because you know something other people don't. And it doesn't humble you and break you and amaze you. It just makes you think, oh, I know that. I know that. But, but these things are not to just be known. They're to, be, to bring us to adoration, to worship, to, to joy, to love. And you may hear it in youth group. You may hear it at home. You may hear it at your school. And it's very easy to be hardened by it. Also, there's, if you're a teenager, it's not cool to get emotional about anything except football or, you know, Xbox or something like that. And it's okay in that arena. You can go nuts, you know. But don't go nuts over Jesus in front of another teenager. You know, that wouldn't be good. Fear of acceptance, of course. And for some, there's still the doubt of God's goodness, a doubt that he'll forgive me. One child, remember, six years old, was heard his daddy confess his sins, and he looked up at his daddy and said, You sin? <laughs> he just couldn't believe that his daddy had to ask for forgiveness of sins. He knew he was a sinner, but it just stunned him that his daddy was asking for forgiveness of sins. Yes, we all must have this astonishing forgiveness of sin. But you see, the... This is the need then for personal worship, personal meditation, family meditation on the Word, for you to actively seek today, when am I going to adore God? Tomorrow, when will I adore God? Tuesday, when am I going to adore God? Wednesday, when am I going to adore God? 
That's your life as a believer. And if it's not nurtured in this time of meditation and looking at his glory in discussion with other Christians, in Bible study, in your own personal study, in family, nurturing this little baby grace that's in us that must be constantly attended to, then we won't be filled with the richness of his glory and things will harden and fade. And so we, we turn, when you read the word, turn it into praise. When you experience any of his goodness in culture or creation, turn it into praise. Fill your prayers with praise. Practice gratitude in every little thing that you have. Because when God fades from view, Baal steps in the place. And you will worship him. You will worship the idols of your culture. If you do not actively worship God and your heart is not engaged in warm affection and you're working at it and growing in it, you will choose to worship the gods of your culture. You have no choice. Because you will worship. You will have allegiance to something. Something will have the main affection of your life. And in their case, they gave themselves to the gods that surrounded them. When the glory of God fades, the false glory of the surrounding culture comes and takes us. And it says that they abandoned the Lord twice in that passage from 11 and following. Abandoned him, walked away from him. This is the same language that's used when Ruth says to Naomi, I will not depart from you. I will not abandon you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She steadfastly would not abandon Naomi. But the people of God, this God who had delivered them and delivered them from their enemies, they now abandon that God to embrace the gods of their enemies. So we refuse to know God, and when we refuse to know Him, we will embrace the gods of our enemies, so to speak. And that's why, again, the emphasis, the great work that the Lord had done that did not acknowledge the, the great and good things that God had accomplished among them. And it's viewed then as a treachery, as a betrayal, It's said they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it says they're literally the evil. And that has regard probably for the first commandment. The evil of taking other gods in my place. You will have no other gods in my presence. You will have no other gods before me. And so they did that very thing. They brought the woman in the house and walked her to the bedroom in front of their wife, uh, their husband God, and they slept with those other gods. That's the feel of the passage. They did that evil in front of this God. And they went and took and served and bowed down and ran after, and it says, hoard after these other gods. And so they refused the knowledge of God, and secondly then, they run after these other gods, the gods that are around them. 
And we had the setting for this from the first chapter because it says they did not drive out the Canaanites. They did not destroy the Canaanites. They began to live in the midst of the Canaanites or the Canaanites, allowed the Canaanites to live in their midst. And then it says they lived in the Canaanites' midst. And we've seen already they did not drive them out and they didn't destroy their places of worship. And part of the reason, perhaps, that they didn't drive them out and they didn't destroy is just the sheer difficulty of it or the fear of it, just the work of it. Some of it, apparently, as you see how quickly they turned, there was at least a seed. It's kind of like this. When I, I, I take Sports Illustrated, and when the swimsuit issue comes, it goes straight from the mailbox into the trash can. Okay, that's just the way we handle that. But what if Kay's not home and swimsuit issue comes and O'Darwin decides I'm going to stash it somewhere just for later reference in case I want to read the articles, right? That's something of what was happening with Israel when apparently they saw the raucous worship and the fertility rituals of the surrounding culture. And there was a little bit of a hesitancy. Maybe we don't want to destroy this. Maybe we don't want to be rid of all of this. So they take the magazine and they stash it away. They just leave it there just to see what would happen, just to have it available, maybe. And Baal and Ashtaroth are called... Uh, by one commentator, as the lusty young fertility gods. He was the god of the storm. The god brought rain. She was this uh, goddess of love and goddess of war. She was known for her violent sexual uh, passions and then her sadistic brutality. And the way worship went in... Uh, Baal worship was that because in the spring they had to make sure that Baal and Ashtaroth did their sexual thing which would bring about the fertility of the earth. The rains would fall and the earth would bring forth its fruit. You get the picture. So what was involved, at least part of what was involved in the worship is you go into the sacred prostitute who plays the part of the Ashtaroth, and you play the part of Baal, and this imitates and encourages and even by magic power helps bring about that God consummation that will bring about the fertility for your land. And so, yeah, you guys may have had Yahweh out in the desert, but we've got this thing going with our fertility, and it works because the rains do come, and you've got to start participating in this and being a part of that. So it gives a new meaning, you see, when the Canaanite comes up to you and your son and says, would you like to go to Wednesday night prayer? We're having a little prayer service for Baal. Just think of the power and the traction, just the force of that impacting you. That's one of the reasons, in addition to sacrificing their children for Baal and Molech and other gods, uh, that... God says, you've got to rid yourself of these things. You've got to completely wipe it out. It's got to be a clean slate. They didn't. They wouldn't. And so they went after. 
chasing the skirts of other gods, whoring after them, so it says. And it says that they did this quickly, turning so quickly for these things. And that's the same term. The only other time it's used is at the time of the golden calf. And wasn't that a shocking turn? They've been brought all the plagues upon Egypt. They've been brought through the Red Sea and they supplied them in the desert. Moses is gone for a few days too long, they think, and golden calf turned so quickly. And the writer is saying, look, here it is again. So quickly in the land, here's the land flowing with milk and honey. Here it is. You can worship and love this God. So quickly they turn away. And that's not for us to stand back and say, oh, look at those people. It's to say, oh, (laughs) there I am. That's what we are. That's what we do apart from the grace of God. So quickly. (laughs) And then it says that the anger of the Lord was provoked. They provoked the Lord to anger. And it's said three times. It actually is a inclusion or a, put, a beginning and an end from verses 14 through verse 20 begins with the anger of the Lord was kindled. Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord, anger of the Lord was kindled. So that whole section is about how his anger was kindled. But we need to understand a little bit about this anger. I love what Daniel Block says about jealousy, the Lord's jealousy. He said, because of the connotations in our culture, it's really not a good word to communicate what's being said here. He said, the word passionate, though, really is. The Lord is a passionate God. And think of a marriage where the husband and wife have been married now for 30 years. And they begin early on, there wasn't much communication. And they begin to hurt each other in small ways and then bigger ways. And every time they try to talk about it, they couldn't talk about it. And so they just fell into this way to try to keep the peace. Of course, in the midst of it, they have their children. And so they never really communicate. They irritate each other constantly, but they never talk about it. And there's just this rising gap, this this spreading gap between them. And they just exist by each other. And then he has an affair. You know what our response is? Yes! Good. You can have him. I'm sick of him. I can't stand to see him every day. Take him. Be gone with him. This is great. I'm finally free of this man. Take another couple. In love, devoted to one another, open communication, They grow deeper and deeper in their affection. They have children and their lives are built around these children and around each other. They go on these wonderful vacations. They love similar movies and art and they enjoy these things and and they just have wonderful intimacy with each other and their children are about to get to teenage years and then her husband comes in one day and says, I've met somebody else. I'm going to get a divorce and marry her and have another family. What's her response going to be? Because she's passionate for him. 
She's passionate for him. She adores him. She loves him. She's given her heart to him, and suddenly it's all gone. That's something of the feel that your God is a passionate God. He cannot be neutral when you give yourself to other gods. He will not be because you mean everything to him in that sense. He cannot stand by. He cannot do nothing. And so he sends plunderers and enemies. It actually, actually what happens, God now becomes their enemy, right? God becomes their enemy. His hand is against them. It says later in verse 22 when it says that he gave the, uh, the enemies, uh, See, how does it put it? He no longer drive out their enemies, and that he let those he left those nations in verse twenty three. I'm sorry, he left those nations. Actually, it says he gave those nations rest. He gave the nations rest earlier in Joshua. It says he gave rest all around the people of Israel. Now he's giving their enemies rest, and he calls them this nation. Same word for these other nations. And so you see his anger against them, this distress that comes upon them. But even in the midst of that, they are in terrible distress and out of nowhere, not because they're repentant, not because they love God, not because they start worshiping God. He just shows mercy and raises up judges because he has compassion. Why would he care? Why does he have compassion upon them? And it explores that further to say the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. They're they're turning away from this God who had taken them out of all the peoples of the world. He had built a people, he says, out of all the peoples of the world. I take you to be my wife. I take you in covenant to commit myself to your good. And I deliver you out of Egypt so that we can be together and live happily ever after. And immediately when you get in the land, you turn away from me. And still, he sends these judges in mercy. Even, and, and the idea here is God's compassion and their continued degradation, as it says, generation after generation, they just get worse and worse. They got worse than their fathers and worse than their fathers and worse than their fathers. So it's, he's picturing a spiral as God's showing compassion. You would think that seeing his deliverance from the judge would cause them to say, oh, we're going to worship you because you've delivered us. They got worse and worse and worse. And that's what will happen to you and me as we hear more and more of the grace of Jesus Christ if God doesn't hold us and keep us and make these things come alive in our hearts. It should have brought gratitude, but look what it did. We all have this tendency. And so they refused the knowledge of God. They ran after other gods. And then they responded so poorly to God's testing. It's interesting. I'm just close with this. But in God's testing, it says that he tests them to see if they will obey him. Then it says he tests them to teach them war, and then again, he tests them to see if they will obey him. 
And the point is not just to teach them war in a general sense, but to teach them the significance, the importance, the nature of this war to deal with these Canaanites. And here's the lesson for us in this. God is saying, I'm still not going to ignore this fundamental issue that you've refused to rid yourselves of this idolatry. It'd be like a husband who has this anger issue with his wife, or maybe it's a pornography issue that's come up between them. And uh, he just works harder at vacuuming, you know. Look, honey, I vacuumed the whole house. Okay. And, and I did the dishes too. Okay. I did them all week. Okay. This is what I just found on our computer. Yeah, but, you know. No, God is taking them right back to say, are you going to be faithful to me to do what I've called you to do about this issue with the Canaanites? Are you going to learn war? Are you going to believe me and entrust yourself to me? And it it teaches us that idolatry begins in small ways. And so many times we push this off and make excuses for these private, special things while we focus on all the easier things to do. And, And God would call us to these most basic, critical areas of our life. But here, in the end, is the final thing I want to touch upon, which leads us to the, the supper itself, is the real reason that God is preserving Israel. And you just wonder, why doesn't he just give them over? You know, why does he keep dealing with Israel and keep them as a people? I love what Daniel Block says on this as well. He said... It's because of his long-term mission of mercy. And and I could say to you, the reason that God raised up judges and continued to show compassion upon Israel is for you. Is for you. To preserve a people out of whom is going to come Messiah so that that Messiah could be proclaimed on all the earth and you, largely Gentiles, could hear and know this God through his Messiah. The love that you see, this compassion and mercy, this preservation of these people who absolutely are just sinking deeper and deeper is because of you. It's because he wants to make known his love in Jesus Christ to you. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, in establishing the Lord's Supper, And you know the phrase, we use it. Do this, say it with me, in remembrance of me. I say it again, in remembrance of me. Remember. This doesn't mean like intellectual, oh yeah, got it. I had kind of forgotten about it, but yeah, okay. No, heart remembrance. Affections, let your affections enter into this afresh. Be amazed all over again at the glorious work of Jesus Christ. Because this picture of, this picture of the Israelites, sadly, so far is maybe a picture of some of you. Hopefully it will not be the last word, right? 
hopefully, if it is the final word, if it is, as the $10,000 pyramid says, that this is my final answer to God, you're not going to, I'm not going to know you and I'm not going to love you and I'm not going to come after you. And for many of us, it would help us to realize, and you young people, it would help you to realize. I love what uh, always when you'd see Snoopy in his house, and he would talk about people being inside the house admiring one of his great paintings, you know, in the little doghouse. And you realize that you go in the doghouse, and if you could go in there, it's like room upon room upon room in the little doghouse. Kind of like Harry Potter's tent. You know, just a tent, but you walk in it and it's like as big as this or maybe as big as this whole building. How does that work? And you look at Christ, you young people, and you think, it's just this man, it's just this Jesus I've heard so much. If you will give yourself to him and enter into him, you'll find that he's a whole world, a glorious, glorious world, the world in which you were meant to live. Give yourself to him, know him, welcome him, love him and adore him. Let us pray. O Lord, give us grace that we may search you out, that we may adore you and give ourselves up to you. Enable us, Lord, through adoration, through praise, through discussion, through mutual encouragement, through our own meditation and, Lord, to be men and women absolutely committed to adoration and astonishment. Oh, Lord, it will not happen unless your great hand is upon us, for we are weak, we are frail, so easily hardened, so easily flatlining emotionally towards you. Oh, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. Give us your grace. We thank you that this is what you intend to do to bring about this wholehearted, vigorous worship and love and joy in you. Oh, Lord, do it for your glory. A pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?